Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you're working with high voltage wiring, and then I think it's important that you get it right. I think most of us don't know that much about high voltage wiring, but we know, we know this much that it's important to get it right. If you don't get it right, you can short circuit and cause a fire or cause damage or harm. In Brazil, we had three massive copper cables coming into the house, 220 volts. It was a three-phase 220-volt system, and if it wasn't connected properly, then there would be problems. Now, the Word and the sacraments, the preaching and the Lord's Supper and baptism, are kind of like three massive electrical cables which connect us to the source of power. They connect us to the Lord Jesus, and through them, power and grace flow to us from Him. And so it's important to get them right. Because if we fool around with them, mess it up, then either we can lack the power or it can kill us. The Apostle Paul speaks to the Corinthians about the fact that some of you have fallen asleep. You're sick and you're dying. You know why? Because you don't get the Lord's Supper right. So it's important to get it right. Now, in Lord's Day 30, we're considering what God teaches us about the Holy Supper, about who is where. And we learn in the church's confession that God teaches us that in the supper, the Lord Jesus is in heaven, the believer is at the table, and the ungodly are excluded. So let's consider in the first place that Jesus is in heaven. We confess it every week, don't we, in the, in the creed. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. That's where he is. And from there he will come again. What did the angels say to the disciples when they were staring up into heaven after Jesus ascended there in Acts chapter 1? The angel said, This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So he went up, he's going to stay there, then he's going to come back at the last day. And in Acts chapter 7, our brother Stephen was being stoned to death. And as he was dying, he gazed up into heaven. The heavens were opened for him. He saw the glory of God. And who did he see standing at the right hand of God? He saw Jesus. That's where Jesus is. We confess in Lord's Day 18, the scriptural teaching that Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God for our benefit. His human nature, his physical body is in heaven. Now, the medieval church, the church of Rome, took the sacramental language of Scripture and pressed it too hard. They pressed it so hard that they began to identify or put an equal sign between the sign and the thing signified and said they're the same thing. And so they began to worship and idolize created things as if they were worshiping the Creator. They took a piece of bread and said, this is a piece of Jesus. And they bowed to it. And they worshipped it. And they would parade it through the streets. And people would bow down and worship to a piece of bread. 
And the consecrated host that wasn't eaten by the believers was stored in a special little receptacle called a tabernacle. You can see why the Catechism says those very strong words. The Catechism is very gentle and sweet confession. It's very personal, very loving. It's always asking, now, what difference does this make in your life? And, and how do you know this about the Lord? And it's very kind as a confession. It's not very polemic. And so it kind of sticks out when at the end of answer number 80, the Catechism says the, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. An accursed idolatry, that's pretty strong. That's what it is. What is idolatry? It's having something or someone in which we put our trust in addition to or besides the only true God who has revealed himself to us in his word. And so when we're trusting in a piece of bread, that's idolatry. When we're worshiping a piece of bread, that's idolatry. What the mass does is it, it takes Christ down from heaven and it brings him to the altar and every Mass again, every day, all around the world, with every Mass, Christ is sacrificed again and again and again. And the Roman Church believes so strongly that this is a real sacrifice that it is said by Roman Catholic theologians that even if Jesus hadn't died on the cross, even if Jesus had never died on the cross, the Mass would be a sufficient sacrifice to take away sin. Just the Mass. Well, let's hear it straight from the Roman Catholic Church's Catechism. This is what they say. This is not the Heidelberg. This is the Roman Catechism. The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, are one single sacrifice. Same thing. The victim is one and the same, the same now offers through the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. And since in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner, this sacrifice is truly propitiatory. What are they saying? They're saying what I just said. Even if Jesus didn't die on the cross, the mass, the breaking of bread, and the pouring of wine, and the ringing of the bell, and all that stuff, that in itself can and does take away sin. You know why? Because it's Jesus. Jesus is at the table. The bread is Jesus. The wine is Jesus. It's physically his body, and he is being sacrificed for sin. And so the Roman church got there after many centuries of slowly but surely misunderstanding in a worse and worse way the words of our Lord when he instituted the supper. He said, uh, you know, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And they said, well, don't you hear what Jesus is saying? He, he took the wine. He says, you've got to drink it. Why? Because it's my blood. And what is it poured out for? It's poured out for forgiveness. So they said, we're just following what Jesus 
taught us. And so Jesus is sacrificed day after day all around the world in the Roman Mass. Well, what does the Bible say? Well, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 9 for a second. Hebrews chapter 9. And in Hebrews chapter 9, the whole book of Hebrews is just says so much about the once-for-allness of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. But in Hebrews chapter 9, it's pretty strong. It says that Jesus was not just a regular priest bringing a regular sacrifice to a physical temple. He wasn't bringing the kind of sacrifice that needs to be repeated over and over. We read the end of chapter 29. Oh, chapter 9. Now let's look at verse 25. It says, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood on his own. Well, then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Look at verse 28. Christ, having been offered how many times? Once to bear the sins of many. He's going to appear again, not to do a sin anymore, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So that's what the scripture says. Christ died how many times? Once. Christ was sacrificed how many times? Once. Christ needed to be sacrificed how many times? Once. Then we go on to chapter 10, verse 11. And we see that the, the difference between the repeatedness and the once for allness. 10, verse 11 of Hebrews. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And we've talked about this before. There were no chairs, there were no seats in the temple. The high priest and the priest were never done. They always had more work. They always had more sacrifice to do. Uh, what Jesus did is shocking as our high priest. He offered the sacrifice he walked into the very holy of holies itself, not the copy here on earth, but the real one. He walked into the throne room of God as the last Adam, as our high priest, as our federal head, our covenant head, and he just sat down. That's shocking. It's like the high priest in the Old Testament walking in behind the curtain on Yom Kippur on the day of expiation, the day of atonement, and just sitting down. He wouldn't dare do that. For a whole bunch of reasons. But one of the main reasons is because he had extra work to do. He had to go out immediately and start doing more sacrifices. So where is the Lord Jesus in the Holy Supper? He's not in the bread. He's not in the wine. He's in heaven. He's at the right hand of God. The sacrifice has been sacrificed. The payment has been paid. It is finished is what he spoke in a loud voice from the cross as a victory cry. It is done. He has done it. And so we, by faith, we can enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus through the new and living way he opened up. We, by faith, are lifted up to Christ in heaven. We don't drag him down here on earth. We're lifted up to him. And the bread and the wine tell us something. They say, you are a part of this. You participate in this. Jesus says to us in the supper, you are in me. I am in you. So if I'm seated in the heavenly places, 
then you are seated with me in the heavenly places. Because I am the head, you are the body, I am the groom, you are the bride, and we belong together. We are united in a one flesh marriage. And so where I am, you belong. What I have is all yours. That's what the scripture teaches about where Christ is. And so we as church, as the true Catholic church, the worldwide church of our Lord Jesus Christ, we bow before scripture's teaching. Jesus is in heaven at the supper. What about the believer? Well, the believer's place is at the table. And as we go through the, the, the last two points, I want to draw your attention to a few words in the Creed. The Nicene Creed, page 494, as we're listening to the last two points, just keep this line in mind, the, the fourth last line, and we believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church, especially the emphasis on the one and the holy. Because what we have in the, the next question and answer, what we have in question and answer 81, is an emphasis on the oneness and the Catholicity of the church. Because Jesus paid the price, because Jesus opened up a new and living way behind the curtain, every true believer in unity with every other believer, belongs at the table. Now, we've spent the last weeks looking at uh, the, the Lord's days 28 and 29 and being reminded that Christ nourishes my hungry and thirsty soul at the table. It's a means of grace. In this dry desert of our life, the, the, the sacrament is like a pipeline which is pouring life-giving and refreshing water into my soul. Something happens at the table. The Lord Jesus nourishes us. He feeds us. He makes our faith grow. And so who belongs at the table? Those who are truly displeased with themselves. Well, who is truly displeased with themselves because of sin? Only a believer. What does a believer say? I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And to live and die in the joy of that comfort, I need to know three things. The first thing being I need to know that I'm a miserable sinner and that I need salvation. Well, that's me, a believer. I'm displeased with myself because of my sins. What about trusting that these are forgiven them and remaining weakness covered? Who believes that? Well, only a believer in Christ. Because that's the second part of the catechism. I believe that Christ has died for sinners. I believe that Christ has died for me. What about those who desire to strengthen their faith and amend their life? Who desires that? Well, only a believer. That's the third part of the catechism. The desire to live a life which is more and more holy and which participates in the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. So who says, I need Christ more than I need life itself? Only a believer. Who hungers and thirsts for Christ? Only a believer. So who should come to be fed with the body and blood of Christ at the table? Believers. Every believer, all believers. Notice what the Catechism says. The Catechism doesn't say 
Who are to come to the table of the Lord? Only those who belong to a certain church or a certain denomination or a certain group. doesn't say that, does it? Because that's not what the Bible teaches. Who are to come to the table of the Lord? Our believers. Song of Songs says, He brought me to his banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. The groom sets a table for the feast with the bride, and the bride delights to accept the loving invitation to intimate communion. And that table that our groom sets is not the table for the good. It's not set for the perfect. It's not set for the sinless. It's not set for the worthy in themselves. But the table is set for the broken, the hurting, the struggling, the doubting, the suffering, the frustrated with slow sanctification. And one thing unites us all to each other and all of us together to Christ, and that is faith. Faith that knows that Christ is the only hope. Faith that knows what Christ has done to give me righteousness. Faith that longs for his spirit to keep working sanctification in me so that I am transformed from glory to glory into the image of Christ. That's why anyone that comes to the table in unbelief, whether it's secret or public, is playing with high-voltage power. Now, that can kill you. Anyone that comes to the table that is not displeased with his sins, that doesn't trust in the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on the cross, that doesn't desire a life of more holiness, such a person is playing with high-voltage power. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. The gospel is a two-edged sword. It is also the power for judgment to those who continue in unbelief. So we've looked at where the Lord Jesus is at the table. He's in heaven. We've looked at where the believer is. He's at the table. And then finally, we look at where the ungodly is, the unbeliever. Now, the Lord's Supper is not just a memorial meal. It is a real, powerful experience of power, the power and glory of Christ. Something happens at the table. Believers get fed. Their faith gets strengthened. Grace flows from Christ to the believer. But it only flows when the channels are open. And the channels are only open when there is union with Christ by faith. The Lord's Supper is not some magic trick that will give just anybody, whoever happens to show up, some kind of spiritual blessing or benefit. The Lord's Supper doesn't work magic in the people that have their names on the membership list of a certain church or denomination. But the Lord's Supper feeds believers. And so, 
the church has to make sure that only believers are eating and drinking. And not people who by their confession in life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly. Now, when we look at unbelieving and ungodly, we may think, well, that's talking about the people out there, the people that don't know Jesus. They shouldn't be at the Lord's Supper table. Well, that's a given. That's not what the Catechism is talking about. The Catechism is talking about people who say they are believers, who say they're, in, in, they're united to Christ by faith, who pass themselves off as Christians, but who live in their speech and in their actions as unbelieving and ungodly. And the confession says, listen, the Bible teaches us that those kind of people shouldn't be at the table. And you remember perhaps Psalm 50 that we looked at on Thanksgiving Day. Let's turn there again, Psalm 50, at the end. And we remember how strong the words of God are against those who just kind of do the outward stuff in the covenant, but have a heart which is far from God, and who just keep on living in their sin. They don't detest their sins. They love them. They embrace them. They don't want to give them up. In Psalm 50, we, we read about what God thinks about the unworthy partakers who eat and drink judgment on themselves because they profane the covenant. They bring wrath on themselves. Let's look at verse 16. But to the wicked God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, if, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You're a liar. An evil speaker. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as he sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. What does Paul say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? He says, if you eat and drink without discerning the body. In other words, if you eat and drink and you don't realize that what you're eating, the bread and the wine, are signs which point to a glorious and heavenly reality. They speak about union with Christ. They're holy things. And if you treat those things as common, and you trample them underfoot and despise them, then you will suffer the consequences. And like I said, in the church at Corinth, people were dying because they were making this mistake. You either love sin or you love Christ. It's very easy. Pick one. You either love death or you love life. And the scripture keeps confronting us and asking us, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? Now, the church cannot judge hearts. The church cannot look into someone's heart and know their faith. God judges the hypocrites. God judges the people who fake it. God judges the people who are very good at making it look like they're Christians, but don't have a changed heart. 
And there are all kinds of reasons why a hypocrite would continue in the church. It's a lot of social capital in being a member of especially a reformed church with a huge network of contacts and the ease with which you can access goods and services and, and help getting jobs and help when you're in need. It's amazing. And perhaps there's the question about dad and mom and grandpa and grandma and family and what would they think if I was really open and honest about what I don't believe. Now, if you're coming to church every Sunday and you don't have a changed heart and you're just going through the motions, you need to be trembling. And you need to hear the call of the gospel. The command of the Lord Jesus Christ to you today is repent and believe. Because life, the life you're living as a hypocrite, is not worth living. But life in Christ is unspeakable joy. And Christ calls you to it Sunday after Sunday. Church can't judge the hearts of hypocrites. God does. But the church must judge people by their fruits. And people that show by their words and by their actions that they don't belong in communion with the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. They need to be kept from the Lord's table. The church, therefore, needs to know something about people that come to the table. They need to know. The church needs to know. The elders need to know the confession and the life. Do you believe? Then you belong at the table. But believing looks like something. Do you live your faith? Does it show? Someone who says, Jesus, I love Jesus so much, but wallows around in the muck of sin and enjoys it and likes it and embraces it, doesn't want to give it up, is not displeased with their sin, doesn't long for forgiveness, doesn't long for growth and sanctification, new life, for more Christ. Such a person makes a mockery of the gospel and of the Christ and despises the word and the holy sacrament. And there are consequences when the church knowingly allows impenitent unbelievers and sinners to sit at the Lord's table. There are consequences. The wrath of God, we confess, would be kindled against the whole congregation. Now, we live in a very individualistic time. It's very rare in human history, in fact, uh, just that in the Western world, there's so much individualism. It's a very modern phenomenon. It's very recent. Even today, in many cultures, there is not the individualism that we uh, tend to take for granted and think is normal. For most of human history and in most parts of the world, people understand that they're not by themselves. They're connected to their family, to their parents, to their uh, larger family, their extended family, their community. And that what I do reflects on those with whom I am in community. And an excellent example of that is uh, back in the time of Joshua when Achan, you remember Achan in Jericho, he, he stole some things which were devoted to, to destruction. And a Western Christian in the year 2019 may think, well, what, why did the whole people of God have to lose the next battle and people have to die just because one guy stole some stuff? What's that got to do with the rest of them? And when Joshua comes falling on the ground before the Lord, he prostrates himself. He says, Lord, we, we lost the battle. People are dying. What's going on, Lord? I thought you were here to help us. And this is what God says back there in, in Joshua. He says, what are you carrying on like that for? Why are you wailing like that, Joshua? Israel has sinned. Israel. And have taken of the devoted things. He doesn't say 
a guy in Israel. He doesn't say Achan. He says Israel. The whole church is responsible for the sin, the undealt with, the untreated, the tolerated sin in their midst. You think that nobody saw Achan moving along the streets of Jericho with those things under his arms? Gold's pretty heavy. You've got to kind of carry it. And you've got the, the fancy clothes that he stole. You think his wife and children didn't notice when he was digging a big hole under the tent and burying it? This was a sin. But people were looking the other way. It was a sin that the church didn't deal with. And people died because of it. So God judges us not merely as individuals, but in the context of community. And so Paul tell us, tells us that we need to judge. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we, we read a few verses there. Look at verses 11 through to 13. I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not, to even, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, the third point says that the, God, the ungodly are excluded. And, and that's, very, that's a very sensitive word in our day and age, isn't it? Because our day and age is all, all about inclusion. And exclusion is kind of a blasphemous word in our time, in our culture. You can't exclude anyone. Well, the fact of the matter is that in real life, we're always excluding things and people, aren't we? If we're drawing up a roster for a basketball team, we exclude the people that only want to play golf. That makes sense, doesn't it? When we sit down for supper, we include the family in the house, and we don't include the whole community. There are, there are distinctions that we make in life. We exclude, we include. But sometimes... Uh, Exclusion is, is a matter of life and death. For instance, if I have a tumor in my body, a cancerous tumor, then inclusion is not a good thing to do. I want to exclude that thing because it means my death if I don't exclude it. And that's basically what the Scripture teaches us about receiving impenitent unbelievers and ungodly people at the Lord's Supper, they need to be excluded because they will bring death and judgment on the church. It's got to be dealt with. Now, how that is done varies from church to church and place to place and time to time, but the principles are the same. The elders have the authority and the responsibility to treat the table in all holiness. And so, Lord's Day 30 teaches us that the Scripture explains where, who is where at the Lord's Supper. Jesus is in heaven, the believer is at the table, and the ungodly are excluded. When people are in the right place, when the right people are in the right place, then the Lord's Supper is a holy and blessed occasion. It is a taste of heaven. The unbeliever and the ungodly are excluded. That points to the fact that in eternal glory there will be no more bad things and there will be no more people that love to do bad things. 
the Lord to be Christ and us and the most pure and holy and eternal love and joy and peace. Amen.